Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Ranjan, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, like I'm it. I'm blessed and fortunate to have you here because you are a YouTube sensation in the uh, in the world of property. Um, if you if you aren't watching Ranjan's videos or you haven't been to the Baker Street Property Meet, people need to get along to it. How many people do you have in the room usually? Uh, a couple of hundred, a couple of hundred. Now. Oh, tell me about two hundred, right? Like m- most times. We do. Sometimes we do a special. Like last month, we had a bit of a special, so we had about just over three hundred or so. It's a very big um, room. But it's wow. pretty much a, 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 a couple of hundred. People come from all over the country. We see it as a bit of a national meet. The range is far outside the M25. Wow. Um, I know this time around I've had people email us because people get to hear about it through YouTube. So uh, one person said um, um, they've changed a business meeting that they're coming from Ireland for. Uh, and they're doing it in the last week of the month so that they can come to Baker Street. So we get people rearranged there. Someone came from South Africa last month. South Africa? That says um, a lot. That does so, people uh, change their people plans are, for that. People are just um, yeah. uh, getting a lot of interest. So, yeah, we're getting people far outside the M25, which is nice. Which is, which is fantastic. And so, before we get into like, your full story, if you could summarise what you do in property right now for the people listening, what would you say? Um, well, I uh, do uh, a lot in property, which is um, still very much residential, because I started in 1990. So 70% of wow. what we have is very much residential stuff, which is not too different to the kind of stuff that you're doing and all yeah. the rest of it. Um, and then over a period of time, um, your, uh, in your journey, everything sort of changes over time, you know, the rules change, tax businesses change, but also your strategy changes, and what you can do change, because there are things you can do when you're just starting out with nothing. Um, and there are things that you can do when you've got something. So everything sort of changes over time. Mm-hmm. So I think it started off with, um, you know, the usual single lets and multi-lets, residential types of properties. Then it moved to building your own. So, uh, in London, there isn't much pos- uh, possibility to build your own as such, so it's more convert. Mm-hmm. So take large buildings, convert them to 5, 6, 10, 12 flats. Uh, so you've got multiple units under one rooftop, but they're still residential. And if you like, this third phase is saying, well, okay, you've got all this residential stuff. Uh, residential takes a certain amount of boots on the ground in terms of management, whether that's you or having someone else do it for you. Um, the sensible way to go and the sensible way that people that have been doing this game a very, very long time eventually go is commercial because it's easy to manage. It's a more stable kind of cash flow. Yes, it's harder to get into, um, but um, if you've got the right starting point and the right strategy, anything is conquerable. Yeah. And and if we go back to sort of 1990, before you got into property, what, what was your life before? What were you doing? Oh, I was, a, I was a student. I was doing my computer science degree and I joined uh, Accenture Management Consulting. I took my contract of employment to a bank who gave me a 100% mortgage based on my job offer. Yep, and uh, I, I got the property six weeks before I started work. Wow. Um, 
And I did 10 years of management consulting. I did an MBA in between. Um, so I'd done all that corporate stuff. But all the way through those 10 years, it was uh, plodding away at building a portfolio. But I think having a corporate job gives you a couple of things which formulate your strategy in quite a unique way. Firstly, it sets the bar high. If you're going to do something else apart from a, a, a good career, because I didn't hate my job, mm. I loved it. It wasn't a rat race, it wasn't anything like that. It was a fantastic career. Um, if you're going to do something else, it's got to be better. So it sets the bar very high. You know, mm. if I'm a, I don't know, I'm working in an Amazon warehouse, I probably hate my job. So I don't have to do too much to be better than my day job. Mm. So the bar is set very high. If you're in a if you're in a career that you love, yeah. the other thing is that in a professional career it's quite demanding on your time. So anything you do do, so you tend to value your time. Yeah. And um, so you're forced down whatever strategy you pick. It's got to be something which is very very time efficient. Yeah. So there are two things that a professional career does for you. I think in embarking on property, one it sets your bar very high about what you're going to get out of bed for, and two. Uh, it puts a very high value in your time because you ain't got that. You ain't got that much of it. Mm, yeah, that's true. Okay. And then how did you make the switch into property? What kind of gave you the idea that property could be your career? Um, I think it's, uh, I've said this before, when people ask, it's Monopoly. You've got to set a Monopoly age date and there's a logic to it. And, I always uh, lose it, Monopoly. Uh, Monopoly is a fantastic game. It teaches you so much about everything. It's a good game. And, uh, you know, the, 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 if you buy up enough properties, you'll have enough uh, income and it'll see you through. It made a lot of sense. Um, the 1990s was a very interesting time. And it's, it's, again, you know, we all know the property market's cyclic. And it's similar market characteristics to what we're going to face over the next few, year, few years from 2020 onwards, which is... Um, a bit of a downer, a, a period where there's no immediate capital appreciation, there's no momentum investing doesn't make sense over the short term, uh, the short term is down. Um, and when you are investing in an environment like that, there's only one reason to do it, isn't there? Cash flow. You've got to kind of make your assessment as to what you see the short term, term downside to be. Mm-hmm. So everything I bought in the early 1990s fell by 5-6% in value in the short term. But if you were buying at 35-40% below from people that needed to sell quickly based on being able to put in an offer and complete quickly, mm. um, then that kind of protects you from the short term market downside, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then of course you've got to buy for cash flow. Hmm. Um, and I think that's the same thing now, you know, because if you buy something today at market value in 2019, the chances are Brexit, no Brexit, whatever's going to happen, um, there's uncertainty with this, all this Brexit stuff. And what that means is that even if Brexit was decided today, um, the, 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 the sort of um, market cycle is already away. Because we've already come off our peak. Okay. And there are a whole bunch of other characteristics in the economy, which means that the, the cycle is already uh, in effect, which means that you are going to see a short, short-term downslide um, of 5 6 
so what have you got to do? You've got to buy cheaper than that. So, you know, I guess this is this is an interesting kind of point now about people who are buying now and hoping to refinance in, let's just say six months, let's play it safe. How would you advise they like proceed, especially if they're, you know, get a certain revaluation, you pull some money out, you pay back an investor or et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of cogs in the machine. How do you suggest that people anticipate for these drops when it comes to, say, revaluation in particular? It's a very good question. And I think um, I'm going to answer that second. Okay. But I'm going to answer another question, mm-hmm. which is um, at points like this, where we shift from one phase into the cycle to the next, basically the strategies which work best at the previous phase of the cycle no longer function. Okay. So the biggest issue now people are going to be following strategies which worked in the boom time and trying to make them work today. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of being able to, with a residential property, buy something, um, put in a new kitchen and bathroom and liquor paint here and there and all of that, and somehow increase it, uh, get it to value up at a level where you can pull all your money out within six months, turns into a little bit of a unicorn type of strategy. Okay. One or two people might make it work, but it'll be very difficult because um, if the market is not growing, it's falling. Um, that is a key thing to getting the valuations that you want after six months. If the market is stable and mm. or increasing a little bit, that helps you get the revised valuation. Because mm. really, when you get the revaluation in six months' time, you're relying on two things. One, a little bit of momentum in the market. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the fact that you bought below market value and it's recognized as below market value by the surveyor. Yes. So now you're just looking on one angle, which is having bought below market value. Mm-hmm. So what I find the best way to add real value to a property when the market is going nowhere or down um, is through development. Now, development, of course, um, the big bear, bug bear is planning permission. It's uncertain. It can take forever. Some of our planning permission schemes take a couple of years to get. Wow. But, and it's uncertain. Permitted development, though, is certain. Yeah. You know, 56 days, you get it. You know the boxes to tick, you get it. And the best avenue for permitted development opportunity is commercial property. Mm-hmm. because the, the government have introduced so many permitted development uh, rights on commercial buildings to repurpose them, they're all virtually instantly realisable. Um, so if you can make um, a flat where previously was a commercial space mm-hmm. and you get the permission in 56 days, you've instantly uplifted the value of that property by 50, 60, 70% plus. Yeah. Um, we've got a video on our YouTube channel, uh, Kieran... Gil, she's done this strategy, which bought a property in West Ealing just a few months ago at auction. And um, it's a shop and under permitted development, she's she's, uh, just received permission on the 56th day to make a flat at the back. Now, the property was bought for 240 at auction, uh, the whole shop, just the flat at the back. It's going to be worth about 330. In, in my ceiling, yeah, yeah, for sure. 60, 70 grand to get there, plus you've got the shop at the front. You don't have to do too much to see that the figures work. And yeah. we'll, be, we'll be going back on that site for another sort of um, follow-up tour later on on YouTube. Um, but that's what I mean. Within a short space of time, um, what Kieran's done with that deal 
is uh, irrespective of what the market's doing. It doesn't matter if flats in Ealing fall by 5%. The fact she's created one yeah. where one didn't exist before, <clears throat> out, which was easily realisable by permitted development without mm. the uncertainty of planning, has meant she's locked in real value uplift regardless of what the market's doing. So we're definitely going to get into commercial and actually that deal will be interesting to talk through as well. But going back to the question about the kind of revaluations, mm-hmm. it, so I guess is your is your tangible advice in your opinion to people, if they're waiting for a revaluation, is get it done sooner rather than later before the market turns? Oh, absolutely. Is the, um, to pay the extra fees, pay the extra percentage arrangement yes. fees to get it done pre-six months? People should, um, people should try to, if they're relying on that strategy, definitely. Um, the auction rooms are all as a barometer um, for what happens in the wider wider market. Mm-hmm. So I was at the Savills auction, a last Savills residential auction uh, in was it October or September? I can't remember now. But um, the the interesting thing about that auction is their sales ratio was about 63, 63%. And that was the lowest sales ratio since 2013. Oh. If you go back on their website, their last residential was the lowest sales ratio. So that means fewer properties are selling, basically. Yeah. Whereas last year, it was 85, 90% plus. That's a big difference. Yeah. Um, so, and that is a sign of confidence. And the whole trade looks at that. Because what happens in the auction room today happens in the wider market tomorrow or six months' time. Mm. So valuers, everyone feeds off that. And that's how... Uh, this is all affected. So it's not as though, okay. uh, when you ask me the question, it's not as though what I think, if you like. It, it, I'm, I'm saying these are the indicators mm. that have predicated what happens in the wider market ever since I've been doing property. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not really my opinion. It's yeah, just yeah. I've always looked at these signals and they've always worked. And they've okay. always. Um, and that's uh, the benefit of you having so many years in property, right? It's that people can look at your YouTube channel listen to this and actually see that you've been through these things and you're not just looking at them, right? The, the, well, yes, the property market is cyclic. Um, what triggers, this, the cycle always happens, but the triggers that cause movement from one phase in the cycle to the next change. Like in 2009, for example, it was the Lehman's crash. Mm. Yeah. Um, this time, it's not Lehman's are not crashing, it's other triggers. The, the triggers are different each time, yeah, yeah, but yeah. what happens is the same. So what's the trigger now? So it's the auction, but is, the, is it Brexit? Is there a... The, the, what Brexit has done is caused a huge amount of uncertainty because no one wants to do anything, you know? Um, so uh, when I talk about no one wants to do anything, I'm not talking about the property investor community. I'm talking about the... Because if you're talking about residential housing, you know, not even 10% of the market is made up from investor activity. More than 90% is owner-occupiers. So owner-occupiers are sitting on their hands where they can. Uh, If they want to sell, they're delaying it because they don't think that the buyer's out there. And if you don't need to buy, you're not buying. So that's causing a lot of inactivity. And then that feeds in, ripples into the developers. um, Because obviously if there's no first-time buyer market, they get a bit shy about developing out. They start land banking and all of that. And a, and a whole bunch of other investor activity kind of has been affected by Section 24, um, the 3% stamp duty surcharge in high-value mm-hmm. areas, and the ever-increasing 
um, anti-landlord sentiment by regulatory authorities. I mean, I have a little joke saying that when I started, there used to be the term landlord. Now there's been another word added in front of it, rogue landlord. Uh, rarely is yeah. landlord said without the word rogue inserted in the front of it. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's this sort of negative um, regulatory cl- climate mm. um, around it as well. So there is the uh, owner activity, owner occupier activity. Yes, it's driven by Brexit uncertainty. People do nothing, but that's fed into the investor community, and it's also fed. Other things are fed into the investor community, which is just causing a little bit of decline. The property market also always feeds off the wider economy. And again, with Brexit, that's caused uncertainty. Businesses are sitting on cash. They're not investing. They're not doing anything. I mean, uh, as you know, we do um, commercial property and we do offices. If I try to let out an office suite, uh, a large office suite on a 10-year lease, no one interested. You rent out a serviced office suite on a 12-month lease, lots of people are interested because no one feels confident about making any business decision with so much uncertainty. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And then, you know, going back to a point you said earlier, you know, people get, you know, most investors get to a point where they say, okay, let me look at commercial in, in some aspect. In your journey, how many years of like residential did you do before you got into commercial and what like tangibly, what made you say, right, I need to do commercial, I've had enough of, of residential, or I've, or I've been there, done it? Well, I, I bought my first commercial in 2003. Okay. And um, it was, it was uh, actually it was more for the residentials, shop and uppers. Okay. So made flats above and had the shop and all the rest of it. And um, I thought the uh, commercial will, will be a good um, diversification of cash flow. Because with commercial rents, they're typically paid quarterly in advance, cool. uh, which gives you a nice bit of stability. Yeah. And, and your leases are typically five or ten, sometimes even 20 year, years long. So it gives you a lot of stability. Um, you don't get so many 20-year leases now, but you know, when I looked at in the early days, you know, the 20-year leases on commercial property... I thought that was as stable as a job in the civil service. <laughs> I mean, how many people get that sort of um, security of uh, no, income over, over that sort of period? So it made a lot, made a lot of sense from that point of view. Um, and then, of course, I... Because um, uh, when I started in property, I think for the first... My first 10 years, I didn't know anyone else who did property. Wow. <laughs> uh, I was doing it in my corporate job. You keep it secret, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Otherwise, yeah. you don't get to stay in your corporate job that long yeah. so I knew no one none of this networking and all of that it was really from 2001 that, that uh, you know uh, when I left my day job I left my day job in 2001 and then I thought I must get to know other people in property and hence uh, uh, started looking at networking and all of that which you which you have to do mm-hmm. um, but um, no the, 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 the what I discovered pretty much on my own, was that commercial property was far easier to manage. And if you get it right, um, it makes a lot more sense. The other thing I always do is I always look at people who are uh, 20 years older than me, 30 years older than me, and what they're doing. And where was I sourcing a lot of my residential properties from back then? I was doing the old tired landlord strategy. They were fed up, tired properties, tired landlords, and all of that. And I was thinking, well, okay, I'm buying these properties off you, but a few years' time, I'm going to be you. 
No one thinks about that. That's, no, that's, yeah? that's true, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I bump into some 75-year-olds and they own some McDonald's drive through in Peterborough and they're not tired at all. They've got one tenant paying them eight grand a year in rent and uh, four checks a year, no management, <laughs> full repairing, insuring, lease. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah. I don't see, I, I never saw tired um, 75, 80-year-old commercial landlords. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, and, and uh, I never met them. So, what's going on? Obviously, they're easier to manage. Okay. So, but were you at a point where you were getting sick of the residentials? Were you like, Well, I think in property, you you look at what you like to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't think an entrepreneur with any any entrepreneurial mindset goes into property for the love of property management. (laughs) Um, uh, Property management is really asset management. You know, people, entrepreneurs do things for doing the deal. Um, and obviously you have to asset, part of it is asset management, mm-hmm. which you have to get done. Yeah, That's yeah. not what you do it for. Um, and quite frankly, um, the only reason to do asset management is because you're getting a combination of cash flow plus capital appreciation. Um, the cash flow alone, in my view, is not quite enough to do it all for. There's got to be the longer term, because yeah. usually, um, if you work it out, the cash flow compared to cashing in your chips and getting the money out of the asset, particularly if the, I get it if it's 100%. You know, you talk to me about what changes over time. What changes over time is that you start with, you take a lot of risks in your 20s. It's the best time to take risks, you know, get them all out of the way. Because if they work, they pay off and you build a platform. Yeah. But every decade of your life, you, you start taking less risks. And you need to drop your risks by, you know, 20% or so with every decade. Otherwise, you just lose everything you build. But the ten year, first 10 years, particularly in 20s, come for leather um, and just go for it. So you're buying stuff uh, which is 100% loaned out. Um, so therefore, you've got nothing in that property. If you've got nothing in the property, then the cash flow, any cash flow you make is a plus. Because the return is it's infinite. The problem you have is once capital appreciation comes into play and there's something tied up in that asset, then is that the best home for that capital? Then your decision making starts to change. Mm. Now, if you look at many people who have been in the game some time, um, and they've got capital tied up in a residential property. Um, I can do a few figures and, and demonstrate that if you cashed in those residential chips and put that money into a commercial asset, then you would produce more net cash flow with much less work. Okay. So and that tends to be a migration that people make in time. Yeah. So once you made this migration, how did you... Obviously, you've had a long time doing residential. How did you know what to do with commercial, how to buy it, how to refill it, all those kind of bits? Did it come naturally to you? Did you get trained or did you just get stuck in? Um, no, I didn't. I, I haven't actually done any training as such. I think the um, um, I, 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 development I learned on my own portfolio to start with. Um, when I was in my management consulting days, what I'd done is I'd bought 
um, three-storey, four-storey large houses in Islington. And this was before HMO licensing or anything like that. So you could have uh, eight, nine rooms um, in, a, in, a, in a property, usually rented out to students or people in their first jobs or whatever. Um, and my idea was um, what I need is large houses, rent them out to six, seven, eight people, um, all on one tenancy agreement, because I want the maximum rent roll for the minimum number of rooftops. Um, uh, because that allowed me to manage them while doing my job. Um, then when HMO licensing came in, um, we had all these three, four-storey houses that made sense to convert them all into flats. Um, so convert them into flats. So I kind of cut my teeth, if you like, in development yeah. on doing that portfolio. Got really good at it after doing a few. And then it, then it made sense to start buying specifically for flat conversions. Okay, I see. And, and you know, for people who are listening, do you think people should start with residential or can someone just their first property be a commercial unit? Um, well, of course it can be a commercial unit um, because I think there are a couple of things that have changed um, since when I started uh, or even they've changed in the last five years. The barriers to entry for commercial are much lower um, than they ever were. And the barriers to entry for residential have also increased. Um, it used to be you could get a residential mortgage uh, with a 15% deposit not that long ago. And um, you could refinance straight away. Oh, yeah. 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 So now it's 25% deposit. Um, you've still got that with commercial. You've got 25% deposit. But the thing with commercial is that if you can uplift the value, I mean, the, one of the best ways to uplift the value of a commercial property is, is to get something empty and shove a tenant in it. If you do that, you uplift the value because the value is then based on the yield and the tenant covenant and all the mm, rest of it. I see. And because it's a commercial mortgage, there's no six-month rule. Oh, yeah, so you okay. get a tenant and you can tie it up in a way that you can get kind of get that value uplift pretty quickly after purchase. Because the other thing is that when the way companies work is that a property may be unsold and is available to buy. You, there is a tenant out there who's looking for it but they're not looking at freehold properties to buy because it doesn't make sense on their balance sheet yeah, to buy. So they're not looking at it for sale. You pitch the same property to them for, for rent because instead of buying that one unit, they can rent you know, three or four because and, and, they're yeah. looking at setting up a, a chain and growing their business. They don't want to put it in a freehold asset. Mm. So, 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 so you, can, you can actually... Um, I, I think the barrier to entry with commercial is a knowledge thing. Yeah, there are okay. not many people who know how to do yeah, this sort yeah, yeah. of stuff. Um, people, uh, the barriers to entry on residential are low in terms of knowledge. Yep. Homes Under the Hammer, Sarah Beanie's programs, it's all out there, so people think they can do it. Um, the financial barrier is not there anymore with getting into commercial, it's just a knowledge barrier. Interesting. And, you know, when it comes to commercial... Let's say I'm, I'm, I'm like, well, I've got to this point in my buy-to-let portfolio. I'm like, let me do commercial. How do I get started on deciding like my commercial strategy or approach? Am I buying shops and flats or am I buying office blocks? How, how do I inform and decide that strategy? Um, well, you have to, I, I guess um, uh, a lot of it is, is, is finding the deal, of course. The strategy for me has to be uh, in this 
time of market to get a near instant value uplift. Okay. So that is always by implementing permitted development rights. So I've got a lot of videos on my YouTube channel which talk about how to um, um, how to exploit different permitted development rights in commercial property. Because the commercial property space, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity over the next few years, because commercial property, all classes of commercial property is going through rapid change. We know about changes to the high street, in offices as well, um, everything's now in the cloud, people don't need servers, people don't need massive desks and filing cabinets anymore, mm. the amount of space people need for offices has shrunk, um, warehousing has changed dramatically, um, you've got this, the, the, the super sort of mega warehouses that Amazon build, but you've got so many um, smaller mid-tier retailers which have been, which would have been on the high street before that are now looking for 1,500 to 2,000 square foot small uh, warehouses to ship product online. And there aren't okay. enough of those. So from warehousing to light industrial um, to uh, offices to shops, the commercial um, requirement has changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, you know, commercial buildings were all on the side of canals. And the railways came and they had to repurpose those buildings. A whole bunch of commercial real estate become defunct because business practice changed. Mm. What we're seeing is a similar, in terms of magnitude, uh, Mm. need to repurpose commercial space. So what the government have done, in those days, of course, there's no planning rules. Planning rules have meant you can't repurpose stuff. So the government has said, everything's changing. We've got to allow these buildings to be easily repurposed. So not a quarter goes by without some new permitted development right. And then in a very shortly, we're going to be looking at rooftop development on commercial buildings as part of PD, mm-hmm. uh, adding an extra floor. Uh, and if the neighbouring building has two, you can add an extra two if it's not in a conservation area. So all the time they're introducing new permitted development rules to allow you to repurpose buildings. So you've got that. That allows you to easily get the permission. You know, prior, uh, uh, permitted development, you put in the application, 56 days, you get it. Simple as that. And the market now gives a great opportunity to buy these assets at great prices. A few mm-hmm. years ago, a lot of people were talking about office to resi, for example. Yes. And, um, and a lot of office to resi conversions, uh, I mean, the actual sites went at premium prices. One of the reasons for that is that every developer was looking to make a buck. The market was going up. If you secured a site in 2014 and you were going to have your flats ready in 2016, you knew you'd get momentum in the market anyway, which is going to see you through and allow you to play top dollar. Now, what happens in this phase of the market is the buy-to-sell developers get a bit nervous. So the people in the game tend to be the long-term buy-to-hold Okay. Uh, developers who are looking at ex- the exit is through rental and mm. finance and that's a far more limited market to play okay. in and that creates a huge amount of opportunity for people now what I like to do on um, YouTube is showcase some people that are doing very simple entry-level stuff so there's a guy on it on there's a video on there with a chap called Lal he's bought an office uh, not far from here in Wheatonsford and it's, uh, it's a small office that is turned into three flats. Okay. 
Now, he bought that property for £300,000. Mm-hmm. And that property was unsold for, um, that was on sale for about six months. Mm. Now, that property was offered to me because I know the commercial agent that sold it to him. Uh, they were actually one of our tenants. So I know them well. Uh, that property was offered to me, but I didn't do that deal. And the reason, and, and this is a very common thing, which is why there's so much opportunity. Um, a lot of the people that know how to do this stuff are interested in slightly larger lot sizes mm-hmm. and won't touch the smaller deals. Mm, because if okay. you're going to do it, put in the effort, you might as well do it on a slightly larger project. And the smaller time residential developers don't really have the knowledge or the confidence to dip into something like this. Yeah. So you find these interesting price points where it's an open goal. I talked yeah. about Kieran's deal, yeah, that was 240 yeah. Again, it's a deal that we've invested in, yeah. but um, I would personally do, not because it's not a great deal, but I tend to do slightly larger projects, yeah. but I tend to, people that come on my courses and stuff, they do a strategy that I've taught them, they'll back their deals. It makes logical sense. Yeah. But there's a gap in the market where, um, for the smaller stuff, um, a lot of more experienced developers aren't doing them because they don't do that sort of deal size. Mm-hmm. But the smaller residential guys um, don't have the knowledge to do them. Yeah. So, I mean, so they lie open. What would you say to people, and this is why I hear probably a lot of people talking who are doing residential, who want to do commercial, they say, like you said, the high street's dying, the market's changing. Is it a case of, yes, the high street is dying, so perhaps we need to either regenerate them or repurpose them? Or like, how do people who... I guess people say this, when you've got a buy-to-let, you're, a three-bed is always going to let because a family always needs a home, but a shop may not. So what do you say to people who sort of are saying that in terms of the risk of oh, commercial versus like a buy-to-let? Again, it's a knowledge thing, and uh, I'll just share with you some highlights. Um, you've got to, if, you're, if you're doing anything commercial, you've got to be ensure there's occupier demand. So, you know, with... If you're doing uh, buy-to-let, I guess you'd look up spare room and all of that and check occupied or buying beforehand. You've got to do the same with commercial. So there's some areas where this won't work. Yeah. So if there's a high degree of vacancy on a street, don't bother. Um, there needs to be strong occupied demand. And I find there's a nice rule of thumb, and I link it to average house prices. So I will go for retail where in the immediate catchment area of that unit, the average house price is more than the national average. If the national average is about 220, mm-hmm. um, and I'm looking at a retail unit where the average house price is 70 grand, then there ain't going to be occupied demand. Okay. The football ain't going to have a bean. Uh, you'll have tons of vacancy rates in, in the shops. And um, why are they going to let your shop if there are 10 other vacant properties in their street? Yeah. Simple as that. If you start to get above the national house price. So if your areas where, um, like in, in Kieran's area in West Ealing, the average house price is 350, 400 yeah. plus, it's nearly double the national average. So you tend to find there's more affluent footfall. So there's more occupied demand in the retail units. Okay. Um, and if you, if you look down the street where that's in, there are very, very few uh, unlet units. Yeah, okay. So so there are some other simple, I've got, a, I keep on mentioning YouTube, I've got a video on YouTube which is titled something like five ways to find um, uh, opportunity on the UK high street, which okay. go through these five criteria. 
So okay. it's shot selection. You've got to pick the right yeah. shots to uh, to go for. Okay, and then you know you I can't mean... help you if you want to buy in Hull. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's nothing happening. I'm sorry. You know, where I invest, I know there's certain areas where it just would not work. But there's some yes. areas where I definitely know it would work. Um, and actually, thinking about it, the national the prices there are a bit above the national average. So I can, yeah, I, I see that's quite a useful like rule of thumb. Right? It's a good rule of thumb, and it also helps with the conversion because um, remember, it's gonna cost to, like with Kieran's project to make a flat at the back of the shop. That's going to cost somewhere between fifty and seventy, depending on it's fifty and seventy thousand to do that, depending mm-hmm. on the area. Yeah. So, if it's going to cost you that to convert, and you're looking at a flat that's not going to be worth more than fifty, sixty k, no yeah. point in doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. So it's got to be worth one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty, or more plus. Yeah. Before the cost of conversion is even worthwhile. Yeah. Worthwhile. I think that's something for people who are listening to also like realize that it's a great strategy, but it, it just like anything, it doesn't work everywhere. No. So speaking of figures, could you give us an example of a deal you've done or one of your like students has done that maybe highlights how awesome commercial can be? Um, commercial for commercial sake or commercial to residential conversion? Do you do both? Let's do both. The um, I think the, uh, the, the, the 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 classic commercial for commercial sake is the find it, uh, fund it, fill it model. So you find the property, you find a property, mm-hmm. um, and then you basically um, it's vacant and then you use your gut feel contacts network to figure out who the ideal tenant is for that property mm-hmm. um, you pitch it to them um, and if they want to take it then what you do is you secure the property um, you secure the property from the vendor on an option agreement to buy it at a particular price mm-hmm. you get you go back to the prospective tenant and you get them to commit to an agreement to let. Now, with, the, with both those pieces of paper, you, you can get bridging finance and how we finance. I finance my students who have done this um, uh, to purchase the property. Now, once the um, um, company is in, like one of my guys did this with... Um, one of the pizza takeaways. So empty shops, been empty for a year, down on the south coast, got a got a got the tenant involved, which is a pizza delivery firm. They need they took on board, so they gave an agreement to let. They also put spin in the skin in the game because they did the planning application to get the A5 takeaway license. Nice. And once that was got, um, the whole deal could be sort of put together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then then you basically buy the property on a bridge. Now, to get long-term funding, it's not the six-month rule, but long-term commercial lenders, what they like to see is um, they like to see the business trading. So when the surveyor can come round and order a pizza, that's when it's time to call the surveyor round. Yeah? So it's, it's trading, they've done their fit-out, they've, they've opened up, um, then you just go to a long-term commercial lender to exit out the bridger or the private investor and then it will be valued on a yield basis. Now the okay. thing in this particular case is quite interesting because a lot of these um, franchise operators, like with this, this pizza chain, this guy's got about 11 franchise stores. So what they, what they actually asked for was a 25-year lease. Okay. Um, which is great for security. Yeah. The, the, their logic is that when they want to sell their, clus- their franchise cluster, 
Ah. They've got security for their premises. Good idea for them, yeah. So it's great for them, but hey, what does that do for your covenant strength and the value of that property with the lender? You know, you've basically got a no money down deal. Sorry, no money left in deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So that's commercial for commercial sake. Yeah. Um, There is the, um, what I call the under-rented strategy, um, which we often mix up with the pensions, for example, uh, because you can buy commercial property in the SAS, um, pension investing. So there are a lot of, just like there are amateur residential landlords, there are a lot of amateur commercial landlords. And they are typically someone who... um, Joe, Joe and Mary Smith, they ran a florist shop, they retired, um, they've decided to, to pack up their florist shop and they've rented it out to someone else. They've mm-hmm. only got one commercial property they used to trade from there. Mm-hmm. Very much like a one, one property owning amateur buy to let landlord who moved out their own residence. So you get a lot of those. With commercial properties, you have a uh, rent review every four or five years. And a lot of amateur landlords don't know how to implement the rent review and they fail to do so. And they're also fearful, um, because if I implement the rent, increase the rent, what happens if they move out, this, that, yeah, and the other. Yeah. So you're, you're, you can pick up properties where, like I picked up a property myself um, at a commercial auction a couple of weeks ago. It's a tyre centre. Um, mm-hmm. The rent review, um, the last time a rent was set was in 2011. Wow, okay. So it's fallen a little bit behind. You know, the people selling it were elderly and whatnot. They haven't really uh, exercised those rent reviews. Those guys want to... Um, uh, it's a very busy tyre centre. They're looking to renew the lease. Um, they want Their lease is actually ending in a, in a year and a bit's time. So we're going to kind of offer them a new lease, um, a slightly increased rent and all that rest of it. But once we have got the new lease negotiated and the higher rent implemented that immediately puts up the capital value of the property mm-hmm. and hence allows you to borrow off. For me, it's, it's more like what being an entrepreneur and doing deals and business yeah. is all about. Not so much the power tools and laying down yeah, the floors yeah, yeah. at the weekend, but um, actually uh, the fun of the deal. And how does that look? So, so what did you buy that for and what will it be revalued at after you've done the paperwork and the legal work to increase the rent? Um, I don't want to talk about that too much because all of that is kind of could you give an example of what it, it could but, look like um, what the uplift could be the uplift on is, a deal in, in that yeah. kind of the, the, the uplift what I look at generally is that I don't really want to have more than 10% tied up in any one deal okay and if I do 10% of the 10% of of the um, purchase price okay yeah or, or capital if you like funds invested cash in the deal yeah and if I have got if I, and whatever I have got in the deal is recoverable from positive cash flow uh, okay. within a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So that's roughly my sort of principle. So it's free or near free property, but you tend to have to fund it a little bit to get it into yeah, that state. Yeah. And so, you know, it sounds quite straightforward. You buy a property that's not being rented at the right level, you come in, you new lease or you, you ex- increase the rent. And that then increases your multiple on the property, and then you almost have a ten percent or free property. Yeah, yeah. What are what are some of the challenges that people listening are going to face in commercial that you've you know been through and, and done? 
Well, the, the, the challenges is, I mean, the third, obviously, is, is residential conversion. So it's commercial for commercial sake. There are lots of different commercial strategies as well. And you know, there's, there's, there's doing subletting and all of this, but it, um, and, and there's conversion to residential. Um, the challenge with, with, with everything is finding the deal. Um, if you find the deal, everything, fall, everything else falls into place. So you'd recommend... The money, the, the private investors, the backing... You got a great deal, and how do you recommend people find good commercial deals for someone who's you know who has a residential, for example, and now wants to get into commercial? They know a bit about the internet and the relationships. Is there anything different to get commercial deals, or is it the same thing just um, repeated? Well, I would say that um, the, one of the differences between commercial and residential is that it's far easier to get a great deal at auction with commercial, commercial than it okay. is residential. Um, Why is that? Because few people know about this stuff. I mean, more than half of my stuff comes from auction. Mm. Um, the because as again, it's that knowledge gap. Yeah. I mean, Kieran's deal, for example, was called at auction, uh, so it was hidden in plain sight. <laughs> yeah. And the the tenant in that building that Kieran bought were a small firm of chartered surveyors. They knew. They know about all of this. Yeah. We spoke to them. They know about all this stuff that PD, the EA, you can do a flat at the back. But oh, we haven't quite, you know, we, we didn't quite join the dots like that. <laughs> so, um, just because I'm sort of talking about this, it doesn't mean that this sort of knowledge to spot yeah, the yeah, opportunity yeah. is universal. Yeah. So yeah, you get them in auctions. You get direct to vendor, of course, and even with commercial agents, what you find is that. If a commercial property is available um, for sale, you may have an existing tenant in. But when you have, uh, I mean, if you, if you actually um, go on a block viewing for any commercial property, uh, uh, next auction catalog, right? Um, pick a commercial property at random that's near to you and go on one of the block viewings and speak to every person there and say, what are you going to do with it? You'll get 10 different answers. You know, you don't get that with a two-bed. <laughs> you don't, yeah. no. So the issue with commercial is, what do you want to do with it? Mm. And if you want to do something with it, and I want to do something with it, is my plan better than yours? Because mm. if my plan is better than yours and more profitable than yours, and I can pay a bit more and still make my figures work. Okay. So it's that a pure sense. knowledge yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned before that <coughs> if you have a deal the money that everything else will come with it but let's say you've you found a deal like tangibly how would you recommend that like people listening let's say oh i found a commercial deal i've got the plan priced it you know it's, it's ready to it's ready to receive investment all that stuff's done how tangibly can people actually go and get investment and you're investing in i guess we're in london or great yeah. london <clears throat> you know so the amounts are you know fairly substantial compared to the north or you know wales etc how can people tangibly go and find this investment? I think the um, I'm going to come up with the same old um, things that everyone else comes up with. It's really um, relationships. Mm-hmm. You've got to find the investors first before you find the deal. There's no point finding the deal and then and then tapping someone at a networking event and saying, "Hey, uh, we've got to fund this and ex- exchanges tomorrow." Yeah. <laughs> you know, the people um, I tend to back are people that I have developed a relationship with mm. over at least a nine-month period. Yeah. Um, and then the deal happens, and then it's quick. Yes, it's quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the relationship is not quick. 
Um, so it, it, is, it is building those relationships. Um, it's also recognizing, like the great thing about commercial property is many people who, because um, with commercial property you can, you can invest for a SaaS. Mm. So I'd, I advise everyone, um, all investors, to um, uh, get their, I, I mean, I'm not a pension advisor, so I don't want to advise people out of a government final salary scheme because <laughs> that would, in most cases, never be worthwhile. But if, if it's advisable that you can set up a SaaS and you've got some funds there, um, use those SaaSs to lend out to other developers. Because I think the best way to be to borrow money is to know what it's like to lend money. Now, a lot of people mm-hmm. go down the route with pensions to, to lend to your own company. There's so many regulations that, that, and so many things to stop you getting what you want out of because it's a, a connected party. Yeah. I don't think it's worth the hassle. Um, what I advise people to do is if you've got your SAS, with your SAS be a lender. Mm. When you are a lender, you know uh, exactly how to be a borrower. Yeah. It's the same thing with, uh, I mean, when I interview people for jobs, because I'm sitting on the other side now and taking people on, um, with what I know from this side, I can do any job interview and I know what to say on the other side. Yes, of Because you know yeah, it yeah. from that point of view. Mm-hmm. It's a similar kind of thing. So the best borrowers are the ones who are also have been lenders or, and can act in a lending capacity. That's interesting. Put yourself in their shoes, right? Put yourself Physically, in their literally. shoes. The money is everywhere. As I said, develop the relationships first. Bridging is so much easier than when I started. Oh, yeah. I um, find bridging just... Straightforward, absolutely. Depending on the company, but yeah, it's worryingly, yeah, it's, it's worryingly easy. <laughs> the access to money is because yeah. they aren't bothered about your exit route. Whatever they say, I don't think they're that bothered about. They got your first charge. They got first charge. They'll take it off. Oh yeah, they'll take it. I always yeah. tell people yeah. I say, look, bridging is great, but do you realise that they will take your house? They're not your friends. Like that is the big mistake people are making. I think because they assume that uh, oh, it's okay for the bridger. They've done their due diligence. No, they've done their due diligence for sixty percent of the value. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's 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 safe for that. Yeah, of it's course. not safe for your for the hundred percent. That's all you're doing, yeah. Of course, um, that's the uh, that's the issue. But um, private investors, um, if the relationship is there, then the second thing is the deal. What I find with the deal is that um, you need to be able to explain it with four or five numbers on the back of an envelope. And it's in, in, it just jumps out of you yeah, that there's yeah. something there. If you have to do too much scenarios and this, that, and the other, obviously you'll do that in the next round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you can't kind of explain it in four or five numbers and it's really, really crystal clear, yeah. then it ain't a deal. That's, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. I think your first point about the relationships is so important. Like, I think a mistake I made is I only started fundraising like when I had deals. And it worked for some. Some got funded in a week or two weeks. But what I should have done is six months ago been, you know, fund, pre-fundraising, yes. kind of having those discussions. But I didn't. I kind of got the deal and then was like, make money. And now I'm kind of doing that. But I'm also saying, actually, there's a pipeline. So it's kind of that circle that actually I think people should maybe start after, like, you know, after a few months of viewing, offering, once you're really starting out, just, you know, have these discussions. Tell people what you're doing. Because I know if I did that, it would make things now a lot quicker and smoother. Yes. Um, so it's, it's so important for everyone listening to start that early off. So 
what is in the future for you and your business in terms of the you know commercial property side but also the networking in the YouTube um, the networking in the YouTube um, I, I always I mean we share a, a little bit on this in that I think um, having a profile in what you're doing uh, doesn't do you any harm nope. it doesn't do you in all the business activity that you do yeah uh, networking I've been running a networking event since 2003 mm-hmm. uh, took a little break um, but started up again with Baker Street in 2016 it's, it's, it's a it's a fantastic event it's um, uh, the people I meet there and end up doing business with is is, is just uh, it, I mean I, I find it amazing for that and I know people in the room have done JVs with each other. They've met business right. partners there. Um, they've done deals together and all of that. There's a lot of activity yeah. um, going on there. And and so what I've tried to do with Baker Street is to make sure that the content is rich. Um, so it is really substantial. No waffle, no fluff. I only invite people to speak where I know they're the real deal. Many people I've known for more than a decade, um, and, I, and I get people request to speak all the time, but I don't want fluff. The reason I don't want fluff, I mean, it's perfectly selfish, actually, because if I make sure the content is rich, I get fantastic people in the room. Yeah. And if there's fantastic people in the room who are doers, then business happens. And whether it's business activity that I do, or people who would do with each other, who cares, as long as there's stuff being done. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's an abundance of activity. Yeah. If it's fluff, then you get fluff people turn up and nothing happens. And yeah, fluff is, I don't go to events for fluff, I go for the meat, for the value of what people are delivering. So then what's uh, in the future for you as a property business? What are you looking to do? Um, the property business is um, do a lot more commercial. Um, again, uh, we're about 70% residential, 30% commercial. So a lot of the investment activity we're doing is commercial. Uh, commercial development as well. Um, now we're doing, embarking on this serviced office project, mm-hmm. uh, creating 45 um, suites and uh, co-working business centre here, uh, which is a which is a completely new model, if you like. Um, so much more in much more in property, um, but also um, through some of the stuff that I'm doing on YouTube. It's about educating people that. Um, and, and raising awareness that they're uh, taking it away from some of the hype. I'm trying to debunk some of the hype mm. um, around property training and all of that and giving people um, a sort of a way that I know works, that work for, for people that I've advised. It's all there on YouTube. I mean, what I try to do on YouTube is, um, yes, I run training courses and yes, I do a mentorship program, but I put it all out on YouTube. Yeah. Um, if you want to work with me, then that's about the implementation. Yeah. The knowledge, I'm, I'm, I'm free with the knowledge, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? But the but what I do when I work with people um, on the Mastermind Programme, it's all about an implementation, mm-hmm. helping you implement it, and that's different from the knowledge. Yeah, 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 okay. And what is the worst piece of advice you've been given? The worst piece of advice I have Someone been given. Someone asked me this the other day, and I struggled to answer it, so now I'm asking everyone. That's a great question. That is a really good question. That's a great question. Um, I think um, um, the, in, in a professional, the worst advice I've been given is often by professional advisors. <laughs> because I think the, um, uh, you know, and that can be bankers, accountants, uh, bankers and accountants in the main. Because I think what 
many entrepreneurs do is they put too much trust in their professional advisors. Now, I don't say you should know their job, but you need to know enough to ask the right questions and to figure out whether the advice you're getting is good for you or good for them. Yeah, um, I think... Yeah, it's too easy to trust the people in you know yeah. certain positions because of their positions. But if you pay attention to their work, you'll notice sometimes that there yeah. are mistakes, things that are missed. Um, and thankfully, they're not always problem-causing, but they can be. So yes. us as entrepreneurs, yes, we want to outsource. Yes, we want to leave the details to someone else. But I've noticed with people, like, it's so important to know just that much yourself to be able to, to watch what they're exactly. saying. Exactly. And I mean, recently, of course, the classic example of this is all the advice around Section 24 mitigation. So what people are doing, they're going to uh, person X who has one solution. They yeah. have a spanner <laughs> and every problem needs that spanner. Yeah. Uh, and then you go to someone else and they have a power drill. <laughs> and every problem, yeah, yeah, they yeah. drill a hole. But you need to know a little bit um, yourself yeah. to figure out which one of these tools you, 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 is more appropriate for you so that you can explore that further with the experts. So it's just a simple example recently, I think, how so many people have just gone down um, tunnel vision solutions which mm. have been right for the provider but not necessarily for them in terms of when you take a holistic view, view yeah. of their business. Okay, amazing. And I wonder if people want to get a hold of you or they want to watch your videos, tell everyone how they can find you. Um, well, go on YouTube and search Ranjan Property. Um, you find our video. We upload three times a week. Um, it's all uh, helping people to be successful in property. Baker Street Property Meet um, meets on the last Wednesday of every month, 200 people in central London, uh, bakerstreetpropertymeet.com. And um, I'm on uh, sort of Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, so you can find me on there if you just search Ranjan Property. And uh, get in touch. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.